Welcome everyone to IBD Drive Time. I'm Raymond Cross from the University of Maryland School of Medicine, and I'm delighted to have my friend and colleague Asher Kornbluth from Mount Sinai joining us today to talk about the new biologic therapies in IBD. Asher, welcome to IBD Drive Time. Thanks very much, Ray. Thanks, Millie. It's a treat to be here, guys. So Asher is uh, one of the best uh, IBD doctors in the country, and I wanted to get his insights into how he positions our newer biologic therapy. So it's nice that we have more treatments. When I was a resident, all we had was 6MP and infliximab, steroids, and 5-ASAs. But now that we have more of these treatments, it can be really confusing for patients and providers as to how you position these. So um, how do you decide which treatment to use? And let's just uh, keep it to biologics. How do you decide which biologic to use for your patient in the office? Uh, first of all, Ray, you're, you're dating me as an old man. Well, you're not dating with me, but chronologically, you're a kid because when I was doing my fellowship, infliximab was still eight years away. And Dr. Janowitz, my mentor, who, who I love dearly, my late mentor, who took over for Dr. Crone and put Mounts on the map, he actually wrote a paper in The Lancet in 1989, an editorial called Old Wine in New Bottles. And he was about 80 then, and he was still the most forward-thinking guy I know. He basically said, where are we now? We're in 1990. We have the breakthrough Pentassa and Azacol. I know those are brand names, but those are the new five ESAs. We have azathioprine and 6MP, and we have prednisone. This is what we've been using since the 50s, and we haven't made any progress. So you came along as a kid in 1998, and infliximab was approved. And frankly, we now have, as I say, an embarrassment of riches almost. Until about 2015, we still only had the anti-TNFs and Vito, Vito-Lizumab, followed by Eustachinumab uh, as our biologics, and Golimumab, et cetera, Sertolizumab. But we were stuck in the anti-TNFs until Vito came along, then Eustachinumab, uh, and as you know, now we have small molecules as well, which I think we'll get to, but I think about biologics. So we got the anti-TNFs, we have the anti-integrin right now, vetolizumab, and we have uh, eustachinumab and risenkizumab, anti-IL-12 and 23 for eustachinumab and risenkizumab uh, being anti-IL-23. And just because not everyone has these uh, names roll off their tongue, just familiarity when we say RISA. We're talking about Sky Rizzi. We're talking about Eusta. We're talking about Stolera. Just so, you know, we'll go back to their uh, formulary names and, and not use their proprietary names. So to summarize, if I have a patient with heart disease, whether it's Crohn's or UC, my go-to, and, and Ray, I, I, I really welcome what you think, and, and if Millie will chime in, I think everyone agrees infliximab is the go-to drug especially in patients with uh, bad uh, perianal fistulizing disease. Now, I say that based on our experience, and I think there's almost a unanimity among us practitioners. So I think we know about our feelings about infliximab, about our own personal use, as well as the network meta-analysis. And unless I miss something, all of the meta-analyses basically put infliximab as top-rung and I think especially when we look at the severe Crohn's and the severe UC. But here's my editorial remark about network meta-analysis. It really can be spun in many cases to what you want it to show. 
And frankly, and again, from a very sort of cynical view, I look at the acknowledgements often first, and I see, has this been funded by one of our pharma com companies? Now, that is not to knock our pharma companies. Our breakthrough drugs are because of our pharma companies. But often, you'll see a network meta-analysis, and you could tell by the title, by the conclusion in the abstract, who might have funded this study. I don't rely on network meta-analyses. I like to look at the randomized controlled trials and think, how does that apply to my patient? Every patient sitting in front of you is essentially an N of one and may never have fit into that study to begin with. So in terms of the hot, getting back to your question, in terms of the hot Crohn's or colitis, I think it's infliximab. I think in the patient who's failed a biologic, and these days it's not always infliximab, there we got lots of options. And there is, you know, therein lies the reason all of our IBD meetings, one of the most important meetings or presentations is positioning. Um, and I think to hit the area that has the most morass of data and spin is first in Crohn's disease. So these days, if you failed an anti-TNF, let's call it infliximab or adalimumab, and to sort of skip to one of your other questions, before I leave a drug, I want to make sure it's optimized in terms of drug level. We could have, I'm sure you've had sessions on therapeutic drug monitoring, but I think in this day and age, all of us would agree we want to make sure the patient is in a, quote, therapeutic drug level before we switch them to another class. Now, we know that data best for the anti-TNFs, probably less well, but I think we have enough information, sort of foundational information for both ustekinumab and vetolizumab. I don't know of it yet for uh, our newest risenkizumab. Also, to make the point for our small molecules, which we'll get to in a minute, and I think the easy way to think of that is the pills, we have uh, two JAK kinase inhibitors now, we have one S1P now, that's Ozanamod, and we're soon to have others. In terms of therapeutic drug monitoring, we abide by it, I think everyone would, in terms of reactive therapeutic drug monitoring, meaning you react to a loss of response, whether it's complete loss of response or partial loss of response. I do that before I switch out of ustekinumab to an alternative drug. I make sure I optimize the dose, and I do it as well with vetolizumab, where there too we can measure drug levels. For risenkizumab, I don't know that data yet, and I'm fairly certain we'll probably be seeing it soon. A big question that's starting to arise is, can you, can you use it in patients who have failed ustekinumab? As you know, ustekinumab inhibits IL-12 and IL-23, as the risenkizumab inhibits just IL-23. All of the upcoming drugs that work in that space are going to be anti-IL-23 inhibitors only. I'm not aware of any anti-1223 inhibitors down the road. We have one already approved, that's RZA, and I think within the next two to three years, we'll probably have at least two, maybe three more in rapid fire succession. All of them tend to be IL-23 inhibitors. And frankly, the results do look somewhat better. Now, I phrase it to the patient. Maybe it is, quote unquote, a new and improved use to that it inherently might be a better drug. 
maybe inhibiting IL-12 is not such a good thing. Maybe you're mitigating the benefit of inhibiting IL-23. So if you inhibit IL-23, you might in fact be better off. Or another potential explanation is all the anti-IL-23s that I'm familiar with, their study designs had three IV infusions as opposed to ustekinumab, which you know is only one IV infusion. So it might be that it is a better molecule, or it might be that, for all we know, ustekinumab might have done better had it had three monthly IV loading doses. So that is rizinkizumab versus ustekinumab. And in the rizinkizumab study, 18% of those patients that came in had already failed ustekinumab. And very importantly, those patients had results resembling what other biofailure patients had. And I really have been applying this all the time now. If a patient did well with ustekinumab and they lost their response, even with therapeutic levels, because I wouldn't move out of it anyway, I have had success and there were success in the studies for both clinical response, clinical remission, and even endoscopic response in patients who had failed or lost response to ustekinumab and then went to rizinkizumab. So I like that drug. What's going to limit it? And this limits all our decisions, as you know, is what the payers want. But Asher, I just want to follow up on a couple of questions real quick. So you, you moved right into the rizinkizumab, ustekinumab discussion. So in your practice, assuming that the payer allows it, that there's no preference, when do you use ustekinumab? When do you use rizinkizumab? Or are you just using rizinkizumab now? I'm putting you on the spot. It's a fair question. I think based on the data we have, if I could get them approved, I think rizinkizumab has stronger data. Patients don't mind if you tell them you have better data that they're going to get three infusions rather than one. I think that's a small point. I I don't see that as a problem. And I, like I think it's a slam dunk, don't you, in the bioexposed patient? I think it's a slam dunk. Yeah, and also they had the opportunity because ustekinumab didn't enroll these patients. They had patients that failed two or even three biologics yeah. and it was pretty striking uh, how well those patients did even having failed multiple biologics. So I like it a lot. As you know, it's approved now for Crohn's. There's very impressive data for it in UC as well. And let's come back to TDM too, because I don't want to. I don't want to forget that. So um, I'm a big TDM person. I think there's no question, as you said, with anti-TNFs. We could argue proactive, but clearly reactive. You should be doing. What level are you shooting for before you abandon in ustekinumab, and what level are you shooting for for vetalizumab? I sort of abandon levels for veto and just go to four week. But what are you shooting for? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, short answer is we have a lot less data, as as you know, for that rather than the uh, anti TNFs. So there's different papers that have looked at ustekinumab. If they'll cite papers and say patients who had a level greater than 1.1 of ustekinumab did better. But there are other papers that break it down into quartiles and basically zero to two, two to four, four to six, and six to eight. And the one paper that I saw on endoscopic response, you continue to have benefit with each quartile up to six to eight. So, and I'm not sure, and I'm very interested to hear how you do it, Ray, but if I have a patient that's not in that six to eight-ish range, I'll push them. If they're two or three and they had an initial response and now they're losing it, I'll push the dose 
How do I do that? Uh, you know, you can't get more than 90 milligram syringe. I'll push them to either Q6 or Q4. And I basically stopped going to Q6 because if I'm going to get uh, an appeal uh, and a denial and I'm going to win it, I'd rather just go straight to Q4 because there's no evidence to my knowledge that higher drug levels have ever been associated with greater toxicity. So I have been that's sort a great, of- That's a great idea because then you're- in six months, you're coming back fighting them right. to go from six weeks to four weeks. And, and that's right. just, why not just get it approved all at once? I've just started doing that because you're not going to go from a level of four to 20 with you used to Kinyabab at Q4 instead of Q6. So I have been doing that. Now with Vito, I have to say, and again, the, the literature is sort of, sort of fuzzy, but for maintenance, I want them at least at 15 uh, and I go up to 30. If someone's in the high 20s and they're not responding, I say, it's not working. If in the low teens, 15 or so, I'll still push the dose. Vito, um, I'll do the same thing, either Q6 or Q4. And here's a little pitch. And maybe the, the thing that your listeners will appreciate the most over the next months to years, when they want to kill themselves when they're writing that last appeal letter, is to tell them the following. You go to ccfa.org. Go to the tab at the top that says professionals. You go to that it has a page that has every imaginable appeal letter you want already written in template with references. They are bulletproof. Te uh, therapeutic drug monitoring payment, fecal calpro payment, and probably most important for us is dose escalation. For each of the drugs, they wrote the letter for us and also have included the references. And I can't think of a single time I've had a uh, denial not overturned with that. And I throw in a couple of very nasty threats, but that will basically do it. And the, the community, the IBD community is strong and supporting one another. And certainly if in your community, you want to reach out to one of the you know, busier IBD providers and we share letters all the time that are influential letters. And I practice very similarly. I I want to get the used to kinemab level above four and a half before I abandon it. I, I, I still check it. And if I do check it with Veto, certainly if they're below 13, 14, something like that, I think it's more likely that they're going to respond to dose optimization. And I've actually been doing a little bit more IV reinduction with used to kinemab. And it's actually a little easier, I think, to get that approved sometimes in the dose escalation of the sub-Q. And I've had some decent results. And it's intriguing that you brought up, you know, could Rizinkizumab, maybe it's not a better molecule, but could it be better just because you're getting three IV dose induction? I didn't really think about that. Now, what about, your, you said the hot patient who's super inflamed or maybe has a bunch of extra intestinal manifestation, but but what about your more moderate patient who comes in and, you know, isn't really missing work, but is sort of suffering in silence. Do you ever use the, the novel advanced therapies earlier in them and skip the anti-TNF? Are you still pretty much anti-TNF first for most people? No, I, I, no, I'm definitely not sort of relegating anti-TNF to first line for everyone, mainly because we now have, at least for UC, we have Ozanamod. And I like Ozanamod a lot, but I'm careful who I use it in. In terms of, I don't like it for the very severe patient. I like it for the moderate patient. And if you think about it, moderate is not so bad in UC. If you have, according to Mayo score, and you should never have to do this in real life, but just as an illustration, you have four or five extra loose balance a day, half or less than half, have some blood, 
and the sig looks moderate, means you got a couple of erosions, that makes them moderate. That's a patient who you could go to Ozanamod after failing 4.8 grams of 5-ASA and or topical therapy. I liked uh, budesonide in the form of Eucerus a lot for those patients, but there's no maintenance strategy for those patients. So here now you got a drug, it's PO. I like it for the moderate patient. It's a, I'm not putting it first or even second line in the hot patient. We have a lot of good agents for that. It's beautiful in terms of it's oral. It's not immunogenic. It's a small molecule. You don't need to do drug levels and there are no such thing ever. Um, and it avoids, since it's not immunogenic, that whole discussion about combination therapy. So that's the beauty of S1Ps. And may I add, the same thing goes true for the other orals. The JAKs, right now we have tofacitinib, Zeljans, and uh, upadacitinib, Rinvo. But also, to extend that combo nightmare discussion, since vitolizumab and ustekinumab have such infrequent antibody formation under 5%, I almost never will use concomitant thiopurine or methotrexate. If the patient comes into either Vito or ustekinumab on it, generally I'll leave them on it for a few months rather than to pull the rug out from under them. Maybe it's doing something on its own. But by and large, after the first few months, I have the benefit of not having to deal with a thiopurine. When patients first came to me and were freaked out about getting started on ustekinumab or vitolizumab because they thought they were biologics, for a while, it struck me how freaked out they were about biologics. Then I realized it was because in IBD, the only biologics we had for 18 years were the anti-TNFs. And to their mind, anti-TNFs, quote, cause cancer. They increase the risk of lymphoma. So, so I finally recognized that. And I see that look on their face when I say, yes, this is a biologic. And I say, all a biologic drug means is that the drug was prepared in part in a living cell. Ancient porcine insulin, in part pig, that's a biologic in that sense. Humulin, humanized insulin, that's a biologic. So I try and put that concern to bed especially with those drugs like Vito or Ustekinumab, and now presumably Riza, that don't need concomitant thiopurines, which are really the bad actors. I, I completely agree. And I, I really like Ozanamod also. And for the listeners that want to learn more about Ozanamod, uh, David Rubin did an IBD drive time with us and really, I think, allayed some of those safety concerns that sort of came out when the drug was first approved, which are really in my mind, overinflated. And I find patients really like it because it's an oral therapy. And thus far, I've been really delighted with the safety. Before I move on to a couple more questions for Asher, I just want to remind the listeners that IBD Drive Time is sponsored by AIBD and the Gastroenterology Learning Network. And we have an in-person regional advances in IBD in Baltimore, March 31st to April 1st. It's a half day Friday afternoon and all day Saturday. And Asher, you two are invited to attend. Um, all right, so I want you to look into your crystal ball. What's going to happen when we have adalimumab biosimilar? So what? how's the landscape going to change, if at all? To my knowledge, I think there are 10, count them, 10 biosimilars to adalimumab. Why? Because it was for about 10 years now, the largest grossing drug on the planet Earth, period, the end. So a lot of people want into this game. Um, the one that might be out first is going to change how we practice. 
in terms of we're going to have less options, obviously, to give the uh, proprietary um, or reference compounds is the way we refer to the, the originator. And I think a lot of us have struggled with the, quote, step through therapy, another uh, appeal letter written on the CCFA page, that you need to use adalimumab before anything else, which is okay for Crohn's in my mind, mm-hmm. not okay for ulcerative colitis, which we sort of felt all along. And finally, as you know, we have the varsity trial, which you folks have covered on a prior drive time, where vetolizumab definitely looks better than adalimumab in UC. What's even more uh, perhaps problematic in our choice is when ustekinumab will, I believe, sometime in 2023 have a biosimilar. And then we will perhaps be forced to use the biosimilar for ustekinumab, Stolera, whatever that biosimilar might be. Now, that is going to be a problem, presumably, for the drugs out there that are proprietary and newly approved as anti-IL-23 drugs, not anti-IL-1223, but anti-IL-23. One of them is already on the market, Rizinkizumab. We're probably going to have two more anti-IL-23s, proprietary, newly approved, probably within the next 12 to 18 months. One is Gasalkumab, and one is Mirakizumab. So you will now have three, presumably, anti-IL-23s versus possibly the biosimilar for anti-IL-12 and 23. Now, in that regard, it might be a problem. We might be forced to use a biosimilar for anti-IL-12 and 23, which is a very effective drug, but competing against probably far, far more expensive anti-IL-23 drugs. This is such a problem, perhaps, that Janssen, and this is public knowledge, this is on clinicaltrials.gov, wants to replace their use of Stelera because they're presumably going to lose it to a biosimilar and prove that their anti-IL-23 is better than their own drug, ustekinumab. Because if ustekinumab's a biosimilar, ain't nobody going to get the originator. And that's a bold bet. Because if the biosimilar of ustekinumab is as good as proprietary anti-IL-23 of Janssen, known as Tremphia, I think we'll have a real problem getting an anti-IL-23 brand new drug approved by the payers. So we will eagerly await the results of that trial. So, yeah, I think uh, for the listeners, unfortunately, our lives aren't going to become simpler with those biosimilars, but uh, hopefully costs will come down. Um, Coming back to your mentor, Henry Janowitz, for the listeners that have not read his book, if you can still find it on Amazon, I read it as a fellow, and it is amazing how good the practitioners were back in that era and managing these patients with, with very little in their armamentarium. So it's a good read and I should probably read it again. All right, Asher, tell us, tell the audience something about yourself that they may not know, or that I may not know even. Well, there's really very, very little of interest. I was a a D1 in college, a D1 defensive end. Uh, no, actually, that was you, Ray. I forgot. <laughs> Sorry. 
Division <laughs> three. Going. Don't give me credit for Division one. All right, I would sorry, be the smallest right. D end in the history of right, Division one. And I was also a, a D one swimmer. Oh no, that was Millie actually. So right. she truly was a D one swimmer. I know, I know. I'm, I could barely play softball with a bunch of Jewish kids in Brooklyn College. So that's I got nothing to brag about. I stand among giants. All right, Asher, this has been wonderful. Um, I learned a lot as always. Thank you for joining us and hopefully we'll have you on again in the future.